Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Um, it's been a great service already. Um, I've been moved. Uh, it's been cool to hear Kidogo. We're grateful for Kidogo keeping us connected in the kingdom, keeping us all together during times of isolation. Uh, it's awesome to have people who are dedicated to bringing good news from all over the world right to our homes. I'm really grateful for Kidogo. It's awesome also here to hear the, uh, the LA Church worship leaders. So cool. There was like a ton of them in that grid. I was looking in the chat and a lot of people said that the guy in the top left looked like me. That was not me. That was a different guy who is awesome. I know him pretty well. Um, and then really, really, really encouraging to hear TK, um, one of the newest disciples uh, in the congregation uh, and a teen. Let's go teens. Um, it's just awesome to hear people's testimonies. And, um, you know, look forward to that because we're, we're trying to document uh, more people's testimonies. We want more people to know each other. I think that's, this is all we can do. This is what we can do right now is even though we may be apart, we're going to do our best to, to be together. And so I, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for being here at church this morning. I hope you're doing well. I'm sitting down. I got a cup of coffee. We're going to hang out this morning. We're going to look at scripture. And uh, my prayer for all of us is that, that we would be, would be moved to action by the Word of God. Um, so if you've been with, uh, with us for the past couple weeks, we've been diving into this theme of uncertain, right? And uh, I mean, the graphic in and of itself is kind of a, a little play on words. I mean, the un is just like a little part of it, but the certain is like really big. And the focus is, yeah, our life is uncertain. We don't know what tomorrow even holds for us, but we know that we have a God who takes us by the hand, who's going to lead us through wherever we're going to go and wherever we're at right now. And we've been diving into that concept. We've been looking at scripture to help our faith. And we've been encouraged to not be afraid, right? That was the first thing we talked about. Do not be afraid. We've looked at, even last week, how to manage our worry and how God is our Heavenly Father. And there are different things that can help us not to worry. And so today, we're going to dive into what I believe all of us struggle with, uh, that none of us are immune to. And it's doubt. It's doubt. It's what we call unbelief. And in all the topics we've covered, honestly, all of them, they all really have to do with our battle to be more faithful or to remain faithful. And so to the time of our time together, I mean, the, the title of our time together is simply when in doubt, when in doubt. Let's say a word of prayer so that God can prepare our hearts. Father, we pray that, that you would soften our hearts right now. And I pray that we would open up our hearts and our minds and our souls to your word, God, your holy scripture, the infallible word that you've provided for us. And we pray that in the midst of our doubt, doubt that we may find faith in you, God. I pray that you would help us to understand today what you need us to understand. And most of all, Father, I pray that, that we wouldn't just hear, but we would listen, God. As Jesus said, for us who have ears, let us hear, God. I pray that we would listen to your word and apply it, God. I pray that we would do something about what we hear today. Thank you, God. Thank you for being certain in our life. We love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to pick up in a story, um, and it's a pretty dramatic story. 
Uh, but turn over in your Bibles to Mark chapter, four, uh, chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. I hope that you guys still have Bibles out. <laughs> I know that we put up screen, uh, screens of verses and stuff like that. Um, but again, we're at church. This is not a show. This is not a production. Um, we're here together, and we can learn together. And I hope that you guys have your Bibles. But we're just going to take the story verse by verse and kind of let it explain itself. Let it unfold kind of in and of itself because it's a really fascinating story. And we'll just go through this together and talk about this a little. And at the end, we'll let the scripture draw out the points and the lessons that we can learn from it that it wants to. (laughs) I want us to take special note, though, of verses 23 and 24 of Mark chapter 9 where Jesus makes the statement that is critical for us to understand today. And it's this. Everything is possible for the one who believes. And then the subsequent statement by the man that Jesus is talking to in verse 24, and he says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. This is a story of faith in the midst of doubt. And it's a lesson on the power of faith. And in a way, the power of doubt. And for us today, this lesson teaches us something that I believe that we can all relate to a little bit right now. And it's this. It's that believing in something for a sustained period of time is one of the hardest things to do in life. Believing in something for a sustained period of time is one of the hardest things to do in life. Why? It's because as humans, we're fickle. Right? We go back and forth, and when things are up and down, we change our minds constantly about everything. And sometimes we even look for ways out when our expectations aren't met. You know, I, uh, I'm a big fan of sports. Any of you guys sports fans out there in the chat? Um, this has been an especially difficult time for me because I love to watch sports. I'm missing out on the Premier League and, uh, you know, the NFL, even though that's not here, um, but basketball season. I mean, I'm missing out on a lot of sports. I miss sports a lot, and I'm sure some of you guys can relate. But um, I researched the most difficult sports teams to be a fan of, according to ESPN. And I'm going to read some right now, some of those teams. And I, I, I'm sorry, and I truly apologize if you're a fan of any of these teams that I'm about to say. And I just want to say kudos to you and God bless you and your continued perseverance and your continued belief in these teams that have continued to let you down. Number three on the list. I'm just going to go to the top three. Number three on the list, the Sacramento Kings. I'm going to read this excerpt. No team in basketball has disappointed fans as much as the Sacramento Kings. Once a proud franchise that won a championship in 1951, as the Rochester Royals, the Kings have rarely made it to the playoffs since the NBA-ABA merger in 1976. The Royals moved to Cincinnati, then Kansas City, before settling in California as the Kings in 1985. The Kings made the playoffs eight straight times starting in 1999, but they never got to the NBA Finals. Since that run, The Kings have missed the playoffs for 13 straight years. It can be tough to stay engaged with a team that struggles so much. And in fact, Forbes in 2016 ranked Kings fans as some of the least engaged in the NBA due to poor ticket sales and social media interaction. 
That's rough. The second team on the list is one that you may know pretty well, and that's the Cleveland Browns. Cleveland Browns. <laughs> Can't even say their name without laughing. When, it, when, it, when fans, when your own fans call a team stadium the factory of sadness, you know that the franchise is struggling. After the 1995 season, the Browns moved to Baltimore, leaving Cleveland without an NFL team for three years. And ever since the team came back in 1999, they've been terrible, making the playoffs just once and posting only two winning seasons. They became the second team ever to go 0-16 in 2017. And they seem to be hyped up every season and yet still managed to disappoint fans in magnificent fashion. <laughs> I'm sorry. And the number one, the hardest team to follow, the San Diego Padres. I don't know anything about baseball, but if you do, here you go. This is for you. No team in Major League Baseball loses more frequently than the San Diego Padres. The team's all-time winning percentage of .462 is the lowest of any franchise. <laughs> the, the Padres only make the playoffs about once a decade on average. The Padres have now missed the playoffs for the 13th season in a row and haven't won a playoff series since 1998 when they were swept in the World Series by the Yankees. <laughs> That's rough. Amen if you're a San Diego Padres fan. Kudos to you. But imagine, to have, imagine having to believe in these teams for your whole life or for however long, right? My goodness, I'll say it again. Believing in something for a sustained period of time is one of the hardest things to do in life. You know, when we don't see results in the way that we want, over time, doubt starts to creep into our heart, right, and to our mind, and frustration sets in. And that's where the disciples are at. And that's where this man is at as we read and we pick up the story here in Mark 9. They're frustrated. The disciples are frustrated for some reason and we catch them in an argument with some people. Verse 14 in Mark 9. Hope you guys are with me. When they came, when they came to the other disciples, when they, meaning Jesus and a couple of his other disciples, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. So the story starts off with Jesus coming back to his disciples. Well, where was he coming from? Well, he was coming from a mountain, a mountaintop experience. If you look back in the chapter, um, it's about his transfiguration. Uh, he's been transfigured before Peter, James, and John's eyes, and, and he's also fellowshipping with Elijah and Moses. I mean, that's, I just want to say that would be pretty sick. That'd be pretty tight to be in that kind of uh, position to see Jesus kind of goes super saiyan, you know, transform a little bit before your eyes. Uh, I mean, you get to see that. That would be pretty awesome and also very blinding. Um, but Jesus is coming down from this wonderful time of fellowship and with some heroes of the faith. And he gets down to this mountain. And what's the first thing that he sees when he sees his disciples? They're surrounded by a huge crowd and they're having a yelling fight with the teachers of the law. And I can just imagine Jesus having to take a deep breath, you know, okay, inhale, exhale, and through the nose, out through the mouth, um, as a deer pants for water, oh, my soul pants for you, Lord. I mean, you know, he's probably trying to reassure himself, like, oh, Lord, amen, here we go again, here are my disciples, 
And, uh, yeah, I mean, you see this behavior from his disciples, and I'd be like, oh, wow. But this behavior is uh, nothing unusual from Jesus' disciples. And I was reading uh, in chapter 8, and the, some of the questions that Jesus asks, even his disciples, as he's trying to teach them. Uh, after he feeds 4,000, he does a miracle in front of them, and he's teaching other lessons. In chapter 8, he asks in verse 17, Do you not understand? Do you have a hard heart? Do you have eyes but not see? Do you have ears but don't hear? Do you not remember? And then in verse 21, he says, do you not understand again? I mean, why do I say this? Well, Jesus' disciples were definitely a work in progress, just like you, just like me. They were a work in progress, and this is another lesson for them to learn from the master. So Jesus gets back, and there's this large crowd, which is important. That's an important aspect to this story. There's already a lot of people gathered, and they're there. Why are they there? Well, they're there because the disciples are there. And wherever the disciples are, that assumes Jesus' presence. They weren't there for the disciples. They wanted to see Jesus. They knew that he could heal. He'd been doing all these things. He was a miracle worker. He was teaching all these incredible lessons. They, they were, the disciples' presence assumed Jesus' presence. So this huge crowd is drawn by Jesus, but only to find out that he's not there. So we find the disciples for a little bit, for a period of time, they're on their own. They're on their own. They're away from their master. They're away from Jesus. And as it turns out, things have not gone well. So there's no doubt that another component that's been added to the teachers of the law's arsenal, the scribes' arsenal as they come and see these disciples, there's... there's, there's there's more here there. And there's little doubt in my mind that they were mocking them as they argued. They were, they were making fun of them. They were degrading them. Why couldn't you do this? They were ridiculing them. And we'll find out why in a second. But verse 15, as we continue to read, says, As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to meet him. As soon as, immediately, other translate. Translations say immediately, immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to meet him. As soon as Jesus arrives with Peter, the crowd sees him and they move directly toward him. They are, they are greatly amazed. It's a, it's a very strong word. It's like, like amazed. It's, it's like as if you, your favorite athlete were to walk in the room right now. You'd be like, what? Or if your favorite movie star or actor like walked in the room on you right now. What? Or if your favorite musician or something like that walked in the room right now, that's the kind of word uh, that is used. You'd be starstruck. You'd be awestruck. Or perhaps maybe if Jesus walked in the room right now, maybe you'd have that attitude. That's a strong, it's a strong word. It's only found in Mark, um, and it's only used in one other time, this kind of amazement. They ran to him because they were amazed, but they also ran to him because Jesus' disciples had disappointed them. They had disappointed them, not in a general sense, but a very specific sense. Verse 16, Jesus says, What are you arguing with them about? What are you arguing with them about? Other translations say he asked them, What are you discussing with them? What are you and these teachers of the law talking about? What are you debating about? What are you arguing about? And here's Jesus Amazing. He steps in in this incredible way, in this wonderful way that he's got. He, he's their protector. He's their cover. 
he's their rescuer because they've gotten themselves into a situation and they're not handling it very well. He asks the, dis the disciples what they're arguing about. But what's interesting is that none of them actually respond to Jesus' question. He's talking to them. He's talking to the disciples. The teachers of the law don't say anything. The disciples, they don't say anything. They keep their mouth shut. Nobody answers until somebody in the crowd volunteers to speak. Verse 17, it says, And one of the crowd answered him. Hmm. We don't know why the teachers of the law didn't answer. Probably because they would much rather have a debate with Jesus' disciples than with Jesus, them, <laughs> Jesus himself. Um, they had already learned that they didn't fare super well in that. <laughs> but what about the disciples? Why didn't they answer? Well, the disciples didn't respond because they may not have been doing very well in this argument, in this debate. But I think more importantly, they were embarrassed. They were embarrassed, and they were actually very humbled in this moment. I can kind of picture them kind of like heads down, twiddling their thumb, kind of looking around at one another, trying to not make eye contact with Jesus, you know, like, oh my gosh, like, what's happening? Um, they had not only lost this argument theologically, perhaps, but they had definitely lost the argument in terms of the power that they should have been able to demonstrate, but didn't. So this man in the crowd speaks up. And by the way, Matthew's account, this account is found in Matthew and Luke, but Matthew's account in Matthew 17 adds that the man was falling on his knees falling on his knees, and Matthew says that he called him Lord. So this man has some faith in Christ, some faith, and he comes in a very reverent and a very humble way. And then Matthew says that he's shouting. Matthew adds that he's shouting as well. There's a heavy burden on his heart. He's shouting. He falls on his knees and he shouts in verse 17. Then the latter part says, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And here lies the source of what's happening. What's happening? Why the crowd's here? And what all the commotion is about? It's about this boy who is possessed by a demon that puts him through horrific things. And on a side note, to me, this kind of just magnifies this debate that the disciples and the teachers of the law were having. Here was this child suffering, yet their main focus was on trying to debate one another, trying to defend one's point of view. They were so focused on their own self-preservation rather than on focusing what was actually important and what the actual issue was. I just think that's interesting. The disciples had made a mistake, and the teachers of the law were quick to jump on it. And here's just a small point that I think we can draw. We're just going to talk through this story, but here's a small point I think we can learn. Always remember that the things that we do, our abilities, our talents, and our gifts, are from God. They don't arise from our own strength. And when we fail, defending ourselves makes us forget to rely on God. 
and unhealthy arguments to defend our failure is a symptom of a deeper problem. And oftentimes it shows pride rather than humility. It shows reliance on one's ability rather than on God's. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But that's why they didn't say anything. They were embarrassed. The disciples were embarrassed. And this man says, I brought you my son. You just didn't happen to be here. I brought you my son, assuming you would be here with your followers. These, these disciples, these people couldn't fix my problem. My intention was to get my son to you because he's possessed with a spirit, a demon. He's possessed by a demon. And if I could, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper in a little bit further detail into what this father and boy were actually experiencing. Demons are spirit beings that take up residence in people. And this particular demon had caused this boy to be mute. Not only mute, but we later find out in this story that he was also deaf. The boy can't hear, and he can't speak. And it has nothing to do with some kind of physical problem. It has to do with demonic control. The Bible isn't describing in some primitive way what some people might try to explain as some sort of medical condition. This is not, this is not some genetic condition. No, if the Bible is the infallible, holy word of God, then in this case, what this boy is dealing with is exactly what the Bible is talking about, a demon. And this demon, Luke adds in his account of this story, that, that the boy, when he's seized by it, he suddenly screams. Matthew 17 describes the boy goes into a state of absolute lunacy, uncontrolled lunacy. It makes him scream over and over, and then it slams him into the ground, his head. It slams his head into the ground. It's a really strong Verb. It means like to concuss. It's like concussion after concussion after concussion. This is trauma. And as the boy is being battered, he foams at the mouth and he convulses violently. This is, it, this is hard to describe what I'm talking about. But I describe it because it's real. It's what this father and this boy had to really deal with. You know, I think we can read the Bible and sometimes just glaze over people's circumstances or glaze over. What happened to people? And I don't think that's just in the Bible. I think we've become very numb to other people's circumstances and other people's Hardships and their trials and their sufferings and their afflictions. We just hear it so much. We hear it all the time. And in a way, I think our hearts have become hardened to the actual and very real problems that people are facing every day. We have to have compassion. We have to put ourselves in their shoes for just a second. This is overwhelming. This is heart-wrenching. 
if you had to endure, if we had to endure this situation and, and had to be in this kind of a place for that long, how hard would it be for you to keep believing in God? How hard would it be for us to have faith? Do you think doubt would ever be part of your life? I think it would. It would for me. I would. And now, just when you think that maybe something's going to change when you see Jesus' disciple, maybe the man's excited. Finally. Finally. What you see the problem is, at the end of verse 18, it says they, they couldn't do it. They couldn't heal him. I brought him to your disciples, and they, they couldn't do it. Luke's account says that he begged them, and they still couldn't do it. And that's very strange, guys. It's very strange that they couldn't heal this man because... If you understand, if you look at Mark 6, just a few chapters before, verse 13 says, regarding the apostles, they were casting out many demons. How did they do that? Well, verse 7 says that Jesus, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Jesus delegated that power to them. His power was delegated to them to cast out the unclean spirits. And they had already done it. They had already been doing it. Chapter 6 says that they were casting out many demons. So what's going on here? What's going on? Why, why do they fail now? What's wrong? What happened? Well, Jesus answers that question in verse 19. The Bible reads in verse 19, He answered and said to them, Oh, unbelieving generation. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. Yeah, the other translations of this passage say, Oh, unbelieving generation. It's, it's a, it's a, he, it's, he, Jesus is exasperated. That's what that, the tone of his voice is right here. He's, he's exasperated. Just like maybe when he was coming down the hill and he saw them arguing, he was already feeling some holy exasperation, some holy frustration in the disciples. The problem, this, this is the problem. What's the problem? The problem is that they didn't believe He's talking to his disciples here. And I, sometimes I can view this scripture because the man's talking to him and then Jesus is talking back. Like at one point I viewed this scripture that Jesus was talking just kind of to everybody. And that, that might be true. I mean, that could be true of the crowd who didn't necessarily believe in Jesus. Certainly, certainly could be true. I mean, it could be true of some degree to the father who didn't have a mature faith in, in Jesus at the time. I mean... But really, who is Jesus talking to when he says this? Who is his main focus? It's his disciples. Why couldn't they do this? What was the difference? They didn't believe. No, they were under different circumstances. What was the difference before? Well, always before, Jesus was where? There. He was always there. But now, when he's gone, they're struggling to believe. And they'd better learn how to believe when he's gone because he's going away in a few months and he'll be gone permanently. They need to learn how to believe. The end of verse 19, Jesus says, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? How long, he says, shall I put up with you? It's a very similar expression um, to when he says, Oh, ye of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. <laughs> Um, it's exasperation. It's holy exasperation. And he must have thought for a moment just about that pure 
fellowship that he had with the perfected Moses and Elijah as a pretty stark contrast to what he was dealing with coming back down the mountain with these guys. (laughs) So in holy frustration, he says, how long shall I put up with you? Oh, ye of little faith. Verse 19, he says, bring the boy to me. Bring him to me. He says at the end of verse 19, bring him to me. At this point, the man would get what he wanted finally, and this demon would get what he never wanted. The confrontation. He would come face to face with the sovereign Lord. For the good of the man, for the bad of the demon. For the good of the boy, the bad of the demon. Verse 20 says, so they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. This is very dramatic. As soon as the demon sees Jesus, he immediately throws this boy into a convulsion, throwing him to the ground, and he starts foaming at the mouth, smashing him into the ground. It's, it's terrible trauma. I think this demon, honestly, was trying to kill this boy. Right, right here, right now. But thank God that Jesus doesn't let that happen. While this is happening... While this is happening, Jesus turns to his dad, his father. And this is one of the parts that I love the most about this story. And it's in verse 21. And we might be tempted to skip over it if we don't pay close enough attention. But Jesus asks the father, how long has the child been like this? How long has the child been like this? Why does he ask that question? Do you think he needs the information? Do you think he doesn't know? Do you think he doesn't know every single hair that's on the head of this boy? Does he need data from the dad? No, he knows everything. He didn't need to know. Surely he already knew. So why then? Why ask what he already knows? I believe there's a couple reasons why Jesus asks here. The first one is that he wanted to hear the father's pain. He wanted to hear it. Why? He wanted the father to tell him the story. Why? Because the father was not just coming to a power. He was coming to a person. The father was coming to a person. And if there's anything that Jesus Christ demonstrated the most while he was on earth, it was compassion. It was the compassion of God incarnate. He wants to know. He wanted to know. He wants to know about you. He wants to hear your pain. I'm reminded of Genesis 16, verse 13, when Hagar, if you remember, is going through a lot as a slave and as a mistress. She's going through a lot, and she bears a son and names her son Ishmael, meaning the God who sees me. It means that God sees, that God cares, that God knows, that God wants to know. And I want to let you know this morning that God wants to know. He sees you. He cares about you. He cares about your suffering. He cares about your struggle. He cares about you. He cares about the things that break your heart. And he wants to hear, this is not just a power, this is a person. This is the ultimate person. This is the ultimate one who loves people. This isn't for the crowd. This isn't for information. 
This is for the man to unfold his heart and to talk to the God that would listen to his pain. Why? Because Jesus is the, Jesus is the epitome of compassion and empathy. And his heart breaks for us. His heart breaks for you. This is not power. This is a person. And Jesus wanted to give the Father an opportunity to talk about his suffering. And well, Father responds in verse 21. From childhood, he answers. From childhood. It's been this way his whole life. It's been this way for this, his, his whole life. And we don't know why. There's nothing in the story about why. It wasn't some sin in the boy and it wasn't some sin in the father. If you remember in John 9 about the blind man, his disciples ask, well, who sinned if he's blind? Who sinned? His man? I mean, his father or his mother or him? And Jesus says, nobody sinned. This is for the glory of God. We don't know in every case why God allows Satan to do what he does to certain people. But in this case, this was also for the glory of God. Of God. Verse 22, the father continues. It says, It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. So the father explains how bad his son's condition really is. His son is constantly being thrown into fire or water, and the demon's intention is to kill him, to drown him, to burn him. And I can just imagine the dad living in paranoia, constantly anxious, having to jump in again and again to save his son. From death, and I can just picture him begging his son to stop, please stop. And it's brought him to this place, this place of desperation in front of Jesus. He's tried every solution, nothing works. He's been at its wit, his wit's end, and his faith has just been sapped, and his strength has been sapped, and his faith has been drained. And all he can do is muster up this feeble request, this last-ditch effort and request to God. And he says in verse 22, But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. What do we see about this father's current level of faith? Well, it's, it's pretty weak. His lack of faith is now on full display. He's said it. In front of everybody, his, his questioning is on full display. It's no longer just in his heart. He verbalizes his doubt, if you can. And this is the second reason why I believe Jesus asked him that question. It was, it was the Father's time to admit that he was not okay. That his faith was scorched. That he could not continue on his own strength. And I believe Jesus was giving this man an opportunity to be open about his doubt, his lack of faith. Maybe this man felt weary and burdened and disheartened, not only because of his son's affliction, but because nobody took the time to listen to him. You know, people with issues back in that day or those associated with issues were not treated very well. Whether you were leprous or you were a sinner or you had some sort of other issue, you, you weren't treated super well and you were pretty isolated I can imagine the isolation this man felt as he was going through this but it was time for him to admit that that he was not okay that he needed help that he couldn't continue on his own strength if you didn't know I grew up as a preacher's kid and all my life I felt like I've needed to have it 
altogether. The preacher's kid, you get good grades, you behave at school, you're expected to set the tone and the example. I've always felt the need to be in control of the situation, to always make people feel like they could be secure around me. I could give them a level, a sense of comfort from my own presence or aura or whatever. To be an anchor and a rock for other people. And so when it came to my faith in God and even issues that I would have or my belief in God, whenever I had doubts, I would just toss them aside because I'd label them as weakness. I had my first anxiety attack ever earlier this year. I had no idea what it was. I just knew that my heart was racing and I couldn't breathe. A part of me thought it was my asthma, which I've had all my life. So I already know what it feels like to not be able to breathe. So I thought it was just an asthma attack and I did what I would normally do. I just kind of brushed it aside. Try not to think about it too much, compartmentalize it, whatever. But it kept recurring. And I didn't want to associate it with how I was feeling or my emotions, so I tried to brush it off until I couldn't anymore. It got to the point where it was a daily occurrence, and I felt like I had to start acknowledging that something was wrong. So I talked to Shelly, my wife, and I just told her about how I couldn't breathe, how my chest tightens up and my heart races. And, and so what does she do? She gets the essential oils and waves them in front of my face and lays me on the uh, sofa and tells me to do breathing exercises in, out, in, out, and that helped. Um, but after that, she goes, you need to go talk to somebody in her stern Korean way. You need to go talk to somebody about this, Nick. You need to open up about this, and you need to go outside, and you need to go on a prayer walk, <laughs> and you need to pray. And I'm glad that over the past couple weeks, I've been able to connect with people about it and get open about my doubts, my anxieties, my fears, my worries that I feel, the pressure that I've been feeling lately and the tiredness that I feel. And honestly, that's been so helpful. And my prayer life has benefited tremendously, honestly. I think about what I've been dealing with and what I've been learning. And I feel like God's been teaching me that I'm not as strong as I think I am. And I will never be as strong as I think I am. And in fact, I shouldn't have to be strong in myself. Rather, I should humbly present my weak self to Jesus so that if he can, he would have pity on me and help me. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where Paul writes, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. <clears throat> Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. I think God's been teaching me all over again that his grace is enough for me that it's enough to sustain me. And I believe this past month or so has been a reminder that God wants me to stop trying to brush things aside and instead give those things over to him because he cares and he wants to listen. And lastly, I think God has been reminding me of the power of prayer. And I kid you not, guys, that is the only thing that is literally the, when I am having an anxiety attack because I'm still figuring things out right now, that is the only thing that has calmed my heart, and my spirit. I kid you not, it is prayer. It is when I'm able to connect and pray. Not like you're, thank you God for this meal, thank you God for this day. It's, it's when I can open up about my deepest feelings to God. 
that's when I've been able to get over what I've been feeling. The power of prayer. Jesus is trying to surface a real issue in this man's heart. I realize it's 1127, guys. I'm so sorry. I'm going to try to finish up here as soon as possible. But, but maybe the dad just needed to admit to Jesus what his, what his real problem was to the Lord. If you're shouldering something without talking about it, I beg you to talk about it today. I ask that you would find the courage to admit where you're really at in your faith and with other people. I ask that you would have the courage to do that. Take pity on us and help us. Jesus' response is funny. In verse 23, he says, If you can. If you can? It's an exclamation. If you can. That's like asking LeBron James if he can dunk. If you can. Yes, I can, bro. I got this. Come on, man. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And that's the heart of this lesson. It's the challenge of faith. It's do you believe and do you have the faith to believe that the Lord can do it? I believe. How is your faith in the Lord? How is your sustained belief in the God who provides, in the God who saves? Have you been in doubt, guys? Have you been wavering? Or maybe has your belief been misplaced? Is it no longer in God, but is it too much focused on yourself? Are you believing in your own strength? Because I'm going to tell you, that only lasts for a certain period of time, and you're going to get burnt out just like I was. Do you feel like you have to deal with this all by yourself? Are you afraid to admit your fears and doubts to God? Our faith, guys, that comes from the Word of God is our most powerful weapon in this world. It is the most precious gift that God has given us. Some of us need a revival of faith, just like this father wanted one. And he says, immediately the boy's father exclaimed. There's so much emotion here. He's crying out to the Lord. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. He's yelling. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. God, please. There's that same word, help me. It's It means to run to the aid. Run to my unbelief. Run to my rescue. Please come help me. Be my rescue to my unbelief. That's real honesty right there. That's real honesty to say, I believe in you, God, but I have a lot of doubt. And that's the thing about faith, guys. And this is what God asks of us. He doesn't ask for perfect faith. He never has. I mean, he'd be super worthy of it, absolutely, but that's not really possible for us in this life. And so he just asks for the simplest of faith, the smallest of faith, we're going to see in a second. Because our faith is always going to have a mixture of doubt in it. And thank God that's all that he requires. You don't have to be perfect. He requires even the smallest of faith from us, but a willingness to change. I love how this man wasn't just going to stay where he was in his doubt, right? We don't want to stay there. You don't want to stay in your doubt. You don't want to stay in that muck. You want to be ready and willing and able. You want to have the heart to say, I want to overcome. We need to have hearts that are ready to overcome our unbelief through God. So what does Jesus do? And it says, when the, when the, Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene. He rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. This is where we find out that he's also not only mute but deaf by Jesus' own understanding. This is so cool because even in other times when Jesus, I mean, 
when demons were cast out, they had the opportunity to come back in, right? That's, the Bible talks about that. But Jesus tells him specifically, don't you ever come back in this child. Don't you ever come back. I love that. I love that about what Jesus does for the kid. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. It's so tender. It's so gentle. He gently lifts him up to his feet, and he's healed. And Luke's account of this story says that he gave him back to his father. Incredible. This story is a pretty good, pretty good illustration, right? It's a pretty good illustration in which to teach a lesson, right? Don't you think so? Here we go. Let's go to class. This is how we're going to end. That was the story. Now here's the instruction. Verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? What does that mean? They tried. <laughs> they tried, but they couldn't. We did it before. Why couldn't we do it? Jesus' reply, this kind can only come out by prayer. Jesus says, you are not relying on God. You are not relying on me. There are things in this world that you're not going to be able to command on your own. You're going to have to depend on me. And prayer is the highway that faith takes into the power of God. Prayer is the highway that faith takes into the power of God. Prayer is the way that God's power is unleashed. They try to do it on their own strength. And Jesus says, that's not going to work. You've got to be fully dependent on me. And so we'll close out here and we'll look at Matthew's account. Because Matthew sheds a little bit more light on this story. And at the end, Matthew's account helps us a little bit here. In Matthew 17, verse 19, Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. He said, Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus says, I'm not asking for a lot out of you. I'm not asking for perfect faith, right? He just says a mustard seed, a mustard seed of faith. And I've heard it preached before, like, we need to grow our faith to the size of a mustard seed. What's the point? The point is that we already have that mustard seed of faith. It's just tiny. That's a tiny amount of faith. But the difference is that we need to bring everything over to God. We have to bring it before God. We have to bring it before his feet. We have to lay it before him with whatever faith that we have, just like the Father. We have to lay it before his feet and ask on his behalf that he would move, that he would help, that he would heal. We're learning not how to cast out demons. <laughs> That's not what the point of this message is, okay? We're not learning how to change the topography of the earth, right? To move mountains or anything. We're, we're learning that how a very small amount of struggling faith can draw us into God. That can draw us into God. And in, and in this case, through prayer, it can cause God's power to be released to do His will, even through our own lives. It's an incredible lesson for us who live by faith. So we read the story. What can we learn, guys? What can we learn? I have three things that I feel like we can learn. When in doubt, when in doubt, one, be real with yourself. Are you relying on yourself or are you relying on God's power? Be real. No matter how hard you try, our deepest issues can't be fixed by human power. Only God can do that. 
we must depend on his strength. We learn that from the disciples. Number two, talk about it. Talk about it. Doubt is always the precursor to faith. Doubt is always the precursor to faith. Admit it when you need help. And be eager and ready to replace that doubt with faith instead. We learn this from the boy's father. Even though he was in a state of unbelief, he wanted to change. He wanted to overcome his unbelief. God loves you and God loves us wherever we're at. But that doesn't mean he wants us to stay there. He wants us to grow in our faith. And lastly, pray. Pray and unleash God's power. Prayer is the highway to unleashing God's power. We learn this from Jesus. The disciples on their own couldn't do it for the Father. Only through Jesus' power could the boy be healed. It's about us having a dependence, a full dependence on him. It's a full surrender to him. It's a full, it's faith in him. The disciples needed to learn how to access Jesus' power even while he was absent and make that power present by faith. So the principle is the same for them and for us. Christ isn't here physically. We, now we live by faith. We live by faith. The power of his grace and mercy is available. The power of peace and righteousness is available. The power of love and forgiveness in our lives is available. When in doubt, let's go to God. Amen? I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Father, we're grateful that we can spend this time just going through scripture. We're thankful that we can unpack it together and just, just learn from you. We're just grateful that you teach us everything that we need to know, God, and we pray that you're with our doubts right now. We pray that you're with our insecurities and our fears, and we pray that you would replace that with faith. God, we pray that you would unleash your power in our lives, that we would be men and women who make a difference for you, God. And in our struggling faith, God, in our faith, however large or small it is, I just pray that we would bring it to you, God, right now and today. I pray that we would bring it to you and ask that you would move. We ask that you would move, God. We love you in your son's name. Amen. Hey, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Before we break, uh, I just wanted to say that even though we're using this technology, uh, we love personal fellowship and interaction. Uh, so if there's a way that we can be part of that for you, we'd really love that. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We have awesome things going on throughout the week. We have uh, daily prayer times and prayer groups via Zoom every night at 8 p.m. We just talked about the power of prayer. Let's put it into action. Let's put it into action, church. Every night at 8 p.m. on Zoom, starting tomorrow, we're gonna have prayer groups where we can lift up our prayers to an almighty God. If you'd like to join in or have prayer requests, please, or, or if you just wanna get connected, please fill out the digital contact and connection card that's in the description. We have Ohana groups that are meeting throughout the week for fellowship. If you need fellowship, you're not alone. Please join us. And the awesome thing about everything is that you don't have to leave your house. It's all through Zoom. If you're in need of spiritual fellowship, please check out our Ohana groups. Check out our website for more information on our groups and when they can be found and when they meet. Thank you guys so much for an awesome Sunday. We love you. Have a great day. God bless.